Welcome back to Scripture Commentary. I'm Lee Benson. Today we are discussing worship, other supernatural beings, idols, signs, and wisdom, and human nature. All of these things are happening in the third Sunday in Lent. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, leave a review, ring the notification bell, do all the things. Help me appease the pernicious and fickle algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a comment in the comment section below. I do read all the comments and I try to respond to them there or if it's a bigger question, I'll make an episode out of it. So this Sunday, you have two sets of readings, two options. You have uh, one set that deals with the or has the theme of the Samaritan woman, and then the other set is the set for year B, the cycle that we're in for the liturgical year, year B. So I'm going to be focusing on the liturgical cycle readings for year B and not the other option that has the uh, Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. That reading, that set, that set of readings is very interesting, but I decided to stick with the liturgical cycle which those readings are also very interesting. So let's dive in. Our first reading is from Exodus 20. So in Exodus 20, we're getting the first set of 10 commandments and the, the, the reading or the lectionary is set up in such a way that it kind of cuts out some of the, the fat of the 10 commandments, but we essentially get the condensed form of all the commandments there. So the 10 commandments are the foundational law given at Sinai, on Mount Sinai, in the Sinai Covenant. And of course, we have the twofold division, the first set of the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments dealing with love of God, and then the other seven dealing with uh, love of humanity or love of neighbor and dealings, kind of the, the social commandments, dealings with others. So there are some aspects of the Ten Commandments I, I want to focus on. And in particular, we have the first commandment where it says, you shall not have other gods besides me. So when, when I read Mircea Eliade for the first time, he covered this commandment and he says something very interesting that I want to talk a little bit about. He says that what is involved in this commandment, you shall not have other gods beside me, shows that in this moment, there is not a strict monotheism or monotheism in a strict sense, I should say. The existence of other gods is not denied in this commandment. Rather, it's to highlight God's supremacy or God's priority over these other so-called gods. And you see this throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, but you also get it a little bit in Exodus after the crossing of the Red Sea, there's the hymn of victory, the hymn of Moses, where he says, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? So what's being highlighted here is an absolute fidelity to this one God, because as God says later in the Ten Commandments, he is a jealous God. So there's the struggle between false gods and the, the true God. So by acknowledging other gods, divinities, or, or divine beings, or supernatural beings, we would, in a more technical sense, call them angels, 
particularly fallen angels or principalities. But soul allegiance is still with the Lord. That is the heart of this covenant. But I think it's very interesting, this idea that God in this moment is kind of acknowledging other gods with a small g. Again, I, you know, we would call them more properly fallen angels because their their God kind of implies uh, a a more powerful being, something kind of coexistent with the one God. But here, I, I think keeping in mind the idea of principalities in, in fallen angels is very helpful because there are other supernatural beings that truly kind of grapple for our attention. Particularly, we think of, of fallen angels, things that try to get us distracted or, or pull us away from the worship of the one true God. I think that this this take here, that there isn't a strict monotheism, just in the sense that there are other, there's a hierarchy of celestial beings, that's true. And those those other beings kind of interact with us and, dis- and can distract us from the worship of the one true God. That's not to say... I think the the fundamental commandment here to worship God still remains, of course, and that these other divine beings don't deserve our worship and attention. Nonetheless, there is still this this hierarchy that exists that we should acknowledge and realize that is kind of that kind of surrounds us and distracts us. So immediately following that part where it says, "You shall not have other gods beside me," it says, "You shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above, or on the earth below, or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them before them. You shall not bow down before them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." So here we have the prohibition against idols and Israel's not to make any images or representations of their God. Of course, in the ancient world, the the pagan cults readily used imagery in their worship. And so the idea of idolatry and idols was not uncommon to the Israelites. They had just left Egypt. So they, of course, saw them there. And when they enter into the the land of Canaan, they'll see it there as well. The the idea of the image, the the pagan idol, is not just a mere representation of the divine God, but it's the place where the divinity would manifest itself. Uh, Kind of underlying this prohibition against idols is the prohibition of making God a cult object. That just as God kind of has no name, no proper name, he, he also has no image. That there's kind of an attempt on the part of the Israelites, perhaps, to, if they were to make an image, this would distort God's true nature or the true understanding of God, and that perhaps God would become something that could be manipulated. You know, you could control God through this image, or that you, by making him graspable in an image, you can uh, somehow have an intellectual grasp of him as well. For sure, God's, or the Lord's, self-disclosure comes in signs and wonders and theophanies, but God's presence among the Israelites is not meant to be in an object or an image or an idol, but it's meant to be his divine dwelling in the tabernacle and in in the tent. So unlike other Near Eastern divinities who manifested themselves in animals or cosmic forms, God is actually conceived of in kind of exclusively anthropomorphic terms. He's described as as a human is described in many ways. This is why we talk about God being jealous. Of course, the analogy there is imperfect, but there, it's trying to display something about God. 
that God's interaction with us is like a person who is is jealous. These cosmic epiphanies, these cosmic events that surround God, he's to be shown as as Lord of those events. God is not the storm clouds. God is not the rain. He's not uh, the flood. He's not these powerful cosmic events, but he is Lord of those events, that he manifests himself through them, not in them. Like He's not in the storm, but he is one who controls and rides above the storm. So the, the fundamental error of idolatry is really a perversion of order, that it's the creature over the creator. And so it's a, a fundamental disorder in man. And God knows the hearts of men. He knows that they're kind of awed by signs and wonders and that man's heart is also prone to idolatry. We're prone to make objects of our own understanding, objects of our own desire into God's. And so in this prohibition, God is saying that he is above that order. In, in the particular commandment, he talked about not making anything that resembled something that belonged to the earth or the sky or the water, is that God is not any of those things. He is creator in, and he's above those things. So by creating an idol of something like that belongs to earth, what you're doing is you're debasing yourself. That's part of the prohibition against idols is by worshiping the idol, by worshiping the earthly, you are debasing yourself. So in treating idolatry in the Summa, Thomas says that idolatry is a species of superstition. So under superstition is idolatry. And it is the vice that is opposed to the virtue of religion. And it's opposed to religion because it gives things that are, we give honor to things that are not God, or we give honor to God in a wrong way. Superstition can be either one of these things. By, you know, we worship things that are not God, or we worship God in the wrong way. And idolatry is in direct opposition to the primary object of divine worship, which is God. It, you know, idolatry bestows on a creature the reverence which is due to God alone. So St. Thomas says, just as religion is not faith, but a confession of faith by outward signs, so superstition is a confession of unbelief by external worship. Thomas goes on to make a, an interesting note. He says that idolatry has a twofold cause. Its cause can be either in humans or in the supernatural, which usually means the demonic in this case. So he says that in the first place, in man, the first cause, we are in the habit of creating things. We are in the habit of kind of creating idols out of what he says, inordinate affections. So he cites an example from wisdom where he says that a father being afflicted with bitter grief made to himself the image of his son who was quickly taken away and who had died and therefore began to worship him as a god. What we do is in our in our grief for or in this particular case the father who's grieving makes an idol of of his of his son who has died. He you know both literally and figuratively and goes on and Thomas goes on to say the same thing happens kind of with uh, kings and rulers is we take the king and the ruler and we we make an idol out of them probably what's happening in our own time but anyway so it's in the affections of man we have these powerful emotions and we pour them into uh, different objects and in by doing that we almost give them 
divine life. We give them supernatural life and treat them as if they were idols or if they were gods, and then we make an idol out of them. The second cause is man has man kind of takes natural pleasure in representations. This is what Aristotle observes. So it, it this belongs to man's love of sense images, right? That images, but also these these images are necessary for our mental functioning. And there's nothing that it that is in the intellect that hasn't pa- first passed through the senses, as Thomas says. All thought that transcends the sphere of direct sense knowledge, our, our senses, things we can see, touch, hear, all these things are beyond the, the material. We have to in some way represent in the material. So this is the interesting thing about the prohibition of, of idols is God is saying that I am above all nature, I'm above all these things, therefore do not make an image of me because I transcend the material world. I am utterly other. But those things, you know, like divine revelation that are beyond our senses and that can only be revealed to us, even these things are communicated and received through our senses in some way. So all knowledge of the supernatural has a, an analogy with the natural. Again, God is jealous. That is a, nat- that is a natural analogy. You say that God is, you know, strong like you know strong like a mountain or something like that that's an an analogy we're we're not saying that god is the mountain but the only way we can talk about god is through the natural through what we experience now the other cause of idolatry thomas says is in demons or in the supernatural they offered themselves to be worshipped by men by giving them answers in idols he says and by doing things which to men seemed marvelous in this moment, or in this passage, Thomas is acknowledging what we talked about in the the first commandment of "You shall not have any gods besides me." There are these other fallen angels, supernatural beings, gods with you know with a lowercase g that do communicate to humanity in some fashion, and they can do seemingly marvelous things. Therefore, humanity is prone because we're, we're prone to marvelous events and signs and wonders to say that this is a god. Idolatry can be influenced by these other things that, that compete, again, for our, our, our affections and our devotion. So that's one aspect of idolatry, which is we give things to, to something that is not God, that is other than God. The other aspect is that we offer worship to God in the wrong way. And I think this is where this is kind of where I think a lot of people fall into so-called superstitious practices. So this is where we, um, this is, Thomas calls us a, it's the contrary vice to religion by excess. We offer God worship that is not what he asked for. And I think this is in many ways why some people even go to church, right? Is that they don't go to church out of the virtue of religion that we've talked about. But in some sense, it's a out of superstition. It's it's fire insurance to go to church. They're acting in a superstitious way that if I do as God asks me to do, if I go and perhaps I, in some ways I can treat him as an idol and I can manipulate him into saving me or something like that. Or if I just do these devotions in, in a proper way, or if I do the right amount of devotions or pray the right amount of rosaries or whatever it is, I can get God to give me what I want. 
that would be offering God the wrong type of worship. It's not truly an interior disposition of love, but something that is more underhanded or or false or even manipulative. As I said at the beginning, making an idol is not just uh, an offense against God, but it's degrading to humans, that idols do not grasp the nature of God, but instead harps on this idea or, or connects to this idea that humans naturally worship things that are superior to them, even fallen angels if, if they're misguided. But by worshiping things that are technically lower than God or anything lower than God, humans debase themselves. St. John the Cross has this principle that love affects a likeness between the lover and the loved object. So therefore, anyone who chooses a creature in the place of God makes an idol of that creature and becomes as low as that creature, or perhaps, as St. John says, in some ways, even lower. So love not only equates, but it even subjects the lover to the loved creature. Part of the prohibition is that God says, don't debase yourself. Don't make yourself subject to earthly things, but make yourself subject only to higher things, only to heavenly things. This subjugation becomes evident when our, our cravings, you know, make us terrified of any hint of the death of that old thing. You know, whatever, when we think, you know, when we think about making idols of things, sometimes it's kind of cliche. But it's really true that we, we take natural things and we make an idol of them. And St. John of the Cross is one way we can kind of identify this is by the terror we experience of losing that object. And that wh- whatever we cling to, we give life to, again, we, we become equal with it because of our love. And that e- equality may raise us if it's God or lower, if it, lower us if it's a creature. We can identify the idols in our life, but by seeing where are we terrified to lose something? You know, if God asks us to take it away or it asks us to sacrifice it, if we're terrified of it, perhaps it's a, a love that's turned the thing into an idol. In the covenant of Mount Sinai, there are three things that are tied together. We have worship, law, and ethics. And here we have the Ten Commandments as the law. The law is supposed to be fulfilled or worship is supposed to be fulfilled in the very life of, of a man living righteously. That's proper worship. This is the true worship of God. Life, as Ratzinger says, can only become real when it receives its form from looking towards God, looking up towards God. So the cult exists in order to communicate this vision and to give life to man. So the essential connection between worship, law, and ethics is that a law without a foundation in morality becomes injustice. And when morality and law no longer originate in, in God, in the Godward perspective, they degrade man and they kind of rob man of his highest ideals and deprive him of any sort of you know, vision of the eternal. So any sort of ordering of human affairs with no rec- recognition to God is a, a degradation of man. This is part of what happens, again, in ide- idolatry is that you, you take proper worship and you pervert it. You, you switch it upside down or you, you reorder things. And by doing so, you don't give man a vision, a proper vision of eternal glory, but you actually give him a, a vision that is lower than he is. It's a degradation of him. So on the topic of kind of subverting the order, I want to switch over to the second reading. In the second reading, 
St. Paul is subverting or changing the Corinthians ideology of wisdom and power to replace it with the word of the cross. Christ crucified as God's wisdom and power. So the second reading is, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called Jews and, Gen- at Jews and Greeks alike, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. So the signs which the Jews are demanding of Christ is are, are miracles. And this demand for miracles is a refusal to trust in God and kind of camouflages their their desire to kind of keep the status quo, as some some commentators say. Wisdom for the Greeks here in, in a religious setting and philosophical setting is that they construct a religious system in which the demands are ones that are prepared to accept. That is to say, they, they create a system of philosophy and wisdom in which they are the ones who kind of set the parameters as opposed to receiving those parameters. But as St. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So the Jews reject Christ crucified because of their messianic expectations and the Greeks because of rationalism. That the the stumbling block, the skandalon in in Greek, is literally or figuratively to make one fall, to cause someone to fall down. Christ crucified makes the Jews fall away from wanting to follow Christ. But what St. Paul is trying to say is the, the wisdom that you're trying to seek, that the Greeks are trying to seek in philosophy, is actually foolishness to God and does not reveal God. And that to demand signs from God or to make God a rational thing which can be grasped by reason is to make God an idol. They desire a kind of conventional proofs of power and wisdom, such as miraculous signs or f- philosophical rationale. But again, th- this is this is going back t- to h- human nature that we are prone to follow the most miraculous thing or the most uh, philosophically rigorous thing or, or something like that or, or a system of which we can grasp. Anything we can't grasp is may- maybe a better way to say it we're uncomfortable with and we shun. But here St. Paul is trying to say is God is beyond both of these, that people fail to see God's wisdom and power is not something new to St. Paul. God has been kind of subverting human understanding of wisdom and power for a while, and God continues to do that in the activity of the cross. So that is to say, Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God. So that means that the cross does not merely tell us something about Christ, but it also reveals God. There's something about the nature of God that is revealed in the cross. And it's not that wisdom is the highest thing, and it's not that miraculous signs are the highest thing. In fact, it may may be that at the core of reality is sacrifice. That's perhaps what St. Paul is trying to say. But we can see a kind of a line of thought here in this 
passage. It's very small. But we see that Greeks follow wisdom, and Christ is foolishness to them. But he's actually the wisdom of God, and the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So in, in this moment, Christ meets the demands of the Greeks by being the Logos. So remember, Christ crucified. This is another way to say the word of the cross is another way that St. Paul says it earlier. The Logos of the cross. The Logos corresponds to the Greeks' desire for wisdom, that it's wisdom and philosophy, God's philosophy, God's wisdom that is crucified. We also see a kind of line of thought with the Jews, that Jews demand signs, but the the word of the cross is a stumbling block, but it's actually the power of God, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the sign which the Jews should recognize is the sign of the cross. So it's it's wisdom and sign together in Christ, the, the crucified one, the crucified word of God. However, because they are thinking, the, the Gentile and the Jew alike are thinking in graspable terms, they either want to be awed by signs or they want to be able to make a rational philosophy out of this, God appears and subverts both of those and says, you think that you know, religion or, or revelation is something graspable, but I'm telling to you that you could not have come to this conclusion that the center of the universe actually, that the center of philosophy is sacrifice. That's actually the, the wisdom and power of God, but to the earthly mind, it's foolishness and weakness. On the topic of not grasping what is being communicated, I would like to switch over to the gospel where that scene happens. Today's gospel, we have the Jesus cleansing the temple. He drives out the money changers and the animals. So I had a nice interpretation for this gospel, but then I read some writings from Pope Benedict and his interpretation kind of ruined mine. And I think his, I think Pope Benedict's interpretation is a very enlightening one and takes us down a, a better path than my interpretation. So his, Pope Benedict's interpretation here is that the account of the money changers and, and Jesus driving the animals out of the, the temple and everything like that is sometimes interpreted as uh, an act of holy anger that Jesus was driving people out as if, you know, someone's selling devotionals. is It's wrong for people to sell religious things because it links business and faith. But Ratzinger points out historically, money changers had to be there because the money changers would take Roman coinage and, and change it for appropriate coinage. You couldn't use Roman coinage in the temple because it had the images of emperors on it that claimed to be gods. You had other divinities on there or, or pagan idol, uh, idolatry or images on there. So you couldn't use that. Likewise, they had to provide animals for sacrifice. So it was very legitimate to have money changers and animals there for sacrifice. So when Christ drives them all out, that's partly why they say, by what sign are you doing this? By what authority do you cast us out? Because they had a, they had a legitimacy of being there. They needed money changers. They needed the animals. What Ratzinger says 
what's going on in this passage is of a very fundamental nature. He says it's about worship in a new form of liturgy. That in the other gospel of the day for this Sunday, Christ says that we will not worship on this mountain or any mountain. We will not worship in Jerusalem or anywhere, but we will worship in spirit and truth. Cleansing of the temple is a prophetic, symbolic action of this new form of liturgy coming. That it's not going to be animal sacrifices. It's not going, you're not going to need to exchange money to buy animals or whatever. Christ is going to be the new sacrifice. His body will be the new liturgy. As he says in response, they say, what sign can you give us that you do these? And he says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. But they think of the earthly temple and not the temple of his body. That's very common in John's Gospels that the audience doesn't understand what Christ is saying or they misinterpret the earthly for the spiritual he's trying to get at. Ratzinger's idea here is a new form of liturgy is coming. It's, it's about worship. And we can connect this to the, the first reading. The first reading is about placing God at the top. The first commandment is, you shall not have any other gods beside me. You shall worship the Lord your God. And then from that flows all the other commandments that are in relation to that. So the Ten Commandments are, yes, about the law, but they're also about worship. As I said, we have to tie those two together. So here Christ is saying that I am the fulfillment of that law. I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but I'm also the fulfillment of temple worship. A new form is being inaugurated here, of which has been told or foreshadowed in the Old Testament, that you shall love the Lord your God above all things. I am, I am that Lord that you shall love above all things that will replace the old temple sacrifices. But then we get this very interesting line at the end of the gospel where it says, many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. So people began to believe on account of the signs, not faith or an inner conviction. They believed not in him because they believed in his divinity, but rather they believed in his name, that is to say some quality about him, that he was this prophet. Again, he, he acts as a prophet. It's even quoted in, in the, the, uh, the gospel. It says, you know, zeal for your house will consume me a prophetic utterance. So this certainly goes back to our second reading, where it says that Jews demand signs. They want something miraculous as to why to believe him. But he does not trust them with his divinity or with his teachings because, or with his you know, revealing who he is, because they, they're marveled by the externals. And he knows this because he knows human nature. That's what it says. The human nature is prone to idolatry. It's prone to worship the marvelous, to be kind of astounded because, again, we, we're sense creatures. Whatever kind of marvels our senses, that's what we're attracted to, and that's what we typically make an idol. Now, it doesn't say what signs he was doing, but from other gospels, you can kind of piece together that he was doing you know, healings or or other miraculous events. And so they believed that, but they didn't go deeper to believe the divinity 
by which Christ was doing these things. But here we, we get a, a glimpse into Christ's human nature. You know, the Gospel of John is one of the, you know, they call it kind of higher Christology, as the highest Christology, you know, right from the get-go. We have Christ is the Logos, Christ is the Word, you know, he was pre-existent with the Father, you know, the Incarnation, everything like that. But here we get a moment where it says, that he did, he did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. So on one hand, it's a, a test or it's a, a verse about Christ's human nature, that he's truly human. But on the other, when it says he knew it, he himself understood it well, it's not just because he's God that he understands human nature well or that he has some great insight because of his divinity. But it's also because Christ was fully human, that he understands the temptation to idolatry. He understands the temptation to want to follow the marvelous. This happens to him in the temptations in, in the desert. As many of the temptations have to do with doing something miraculous. There's a deeper layer to all the temptations, of course. But on the surface, it's, you know, turn this stone into bread. That would be miraculous. You know, throw yourself from the temple and, you know, angels will, will save you. Something miraculous, something that would wow people. Christ knows that inner temptation of humanity, the kind of universal temptation to make, to elevate the, the marvelous to the realm of the divinity, to worship it. But Christ is saying, in my person, by this action of cleansing the temple, I'm trying to inaugurate, I'm trying to show you or foreshadow a new form of worship that will come. It will not be in the animals. It will not be, you know, you will not need money. You will not worship out of some sense of marvelous, the marvelous nature of things, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. That the worship of spirit and truth also combines what we were talking about from the second reading of signs and wisdom, that we have the truth of wisdom incarnate in Christ. Then we have the, the miraculous uh, element of, of the spirit, that both of these are, are they're the sign of the spirit. Both of these are united in Christ crucified, and in that in crucified Christ is also the, the new form of worship, which is the sacrifice of the eternal son to the father. I think I'll stop there for this week. Remember, you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me or you can leave a comment in the comment section below. Thank you for listening and I will see you next week.